Let's open the Word of God, please, to Genesis 41. And you're turning to Genesis 41, but let me quote Romans 8.28, which says that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And what that means, Peg, in addition to a lot of other things, is that the Lord uses the events in our lives. I mean, David waking up and working 10 hours hard for the county commissioner every day. God uses the events in the lives of believers to shape our character. And he's actually, Betty, more interested in your character than your circumstances. He's concerned about both, but we tend to get it the other way around. And these function consistently and constantly because of his sovereign providence in one of two different ways. Sometimes the events in our lives are kind of like spiritual barbells, and you can ask Dustin about barbells. He picks up the whole weight machine. But the the theory behind weight training is as you work your muscles against resistance, they slowly but surely get stronger, right? And sometimes the the test we deal with and the circumstances of life um, force us to go deeper in the faith, and our faith gets stronger. Uh, so that's a spiritual barbells. Another way this works is what I call spiritual blowtorch or spiritual blow torches. And in the ancient world, when you had an ingot of gold, it wouldn't be pure. So the only way to purify it is to put maximum heat on it until the gold becomes molten, becomes liquid, and then the impurities float to the top, and you don't touch it with your finger, but you scrape off the impurities because they come to the surface and you can see them and deal with them. So those are the two ways, you know, I like to describe the, the things that are challenges in our lives, and God has designed those for good purposes. All things work together for good. But when you look at those kind of tests, those kind of challenging things in your life, in Natalie's life, she's she's a cancer survivor, or uh, Bobby Dudley's life, she has to drive to Lawton, and uh, she's a, a world-class educator, and it's not easy to be a world-class educator now especially nowadays, when you look at these spiritual blow torches or spiritual barbells, they really fall into one of two categories. Sometimes you're facing adversity tests, things that are difficult, and other times you actually deal with prosperity tests. Now, these tests are designed to produce a stronger character and a deeper faith, but we can mess them up, okay? Uh, adversity tests come, and sometimes... Rather than trusting and obeying the Lord despite the adversity, people doubt, pout, and drop out. And we've all probably been there in Panic Palace. How about prosperity tests? There's no way you could mis- misapply or miss the lesson of a prosperity test. Now you can. It happens. Uh, this would be you finally get that promotion. You finally get that award. You finally get something you want. You get the raise or whatever. You get into law school. You graduate from law school. You become president of the United States, whatever it happens to be. Uh Prosperity test. The, the way you mess it up is you puff, you puff up and you drift away. Okay. And you say that doesn't really happen to real believers. Yeah, it does. Um, now we're going to see in Joseph's life today, up to now, chapter 37 through 40, it's primarily been adversity test he's dealing with. Today, everything's going to change, Krista. We're going to go 180 degrees. He's going to go from adversity to prosperity. He's going to go from rags to riches, right? Uh, I love what Proverbs 30 says about the adversity tests in life, the, pro- the prosperity tests in life. This guy, uh, Asaph, doesn't quite trust himself, and he says, two things, he's talking to God, I ask of you. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Just feed me with the food I need, which is kind of all we pray for in the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily ribeye, French fries, and uh, milkshake. No, that's not what it says. And watch this. The proverb says, uh, don't let me get too poor. I don't trust myself. Don't let me get too rich. I might get puffed up. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you saying, who's the Lord? I don't need you right now. I need you for my get out of hell free card later. But right now, I'm rich and fat and happy and everything's fine. So we'll see you, you know, at Easter. Or... If I have poverty, I might have nothing and be tempted to steal and profane the name of my God. So those are the two kind of tests designed either to strengthen your faith or allow you to see your weaknesses so you can dispose of them spiritually, confess them, isolate them, and grow. But we can mess them up. 
But a guy who doesn't mess up his tests, and I don't think he's perfect, but in Genesis 37 through 50, this guy, Joseph, he deals with adversity, he deals with prosperity, and you get the same old guy. He just does his best, loves the Lord, contributes to everybody around him with a good attitude. And that's kind of what I want to be. And I think we're going to learn some lessons on how to deal with the different tests in life today as we look at chapter 41 in the book of Genesis. But let's pray that we'll be teachable to this amazing story, this amazing turn in his life today as he goes from prisoner to prime minister of Egypt. Um, and so let's pray we'll be teachable to uh, God's word. And also let's pray for our troops and our peace officers and our firefighters. And uh, Sidney Powers, since uh, Murray's not here, he's my go-to guy. I'm going to ask you to pray for us in that direction. Thank you. Thank you, Murray. Or thank you, Sydney. Um, this is going to be an abstract thought warmer-upper that is on a topic that Ron Miller can really uh, relate to. We're going to be talking about uh, falling asleep in church. Okay. Here you have a pastor and a real person. Pastors aren't real people, you know, so we have a pastor and a real person. And the pastor's on the left, and he says, Any ideas on what might help you with your sleeping problem in church, Brother Kirkpatrick? That's the question. And Brother Kirkpatrick says, A neck pillow. <laughs> Rather than the little books under the... Maybe you should have neck pillows. Uh, abstract, abstract thought warmer-upper, dose. We're going to do three of them. A husband and wife were sitting in a Sunday service at the church a few minutes after the message started. The husband fell asleep. The pastor noticed this, as most pastors do. Just because I don't complain a bunch of, about a bunch of stuff, don't think I don't notice it. <laughs> I, I notice just about everything. You'd be amazed at stuff I notice. I just uh, say, Lord, you have to deal with this. Uh, pastor noticed the guy fell asleep. Pastor looks at the wife and says, ma'am, would you please wake up your husband? But the wife said, I certainly will not. You put him to sleep, you have to wake him up. <laughs> this is the last one, uh, the third abstract thought warmer-upper on the, the theme of falling asleep in church. On Sunday every year at this particular church, the kindergarten Sunday school class would attend the main worship service just to kind of see what it looked like. While walking the kids to the auditorium, their teacher asked, do you remember why it's so important for all of us to be very quiet after we sit down for the service? And little Sally spoke up and said, yes, teacher, all of us must be very quiet because a lot of the people in the auditorium will be sleeping. <laughs> the life of Joseph, and this is what's important, is kind of a case study in how to deal with prosperity and adversity tests. It's a case study in daring to practically believe in the providence of God, even in your life, even when you have no idea why God's permitting certain things to happen, good or bad, around you. Um, we're talking about the redeeming power of perseverance and forgiveness in believers, uh, Doug Strange or Kyleen Driggs or Brad McCoy, who actively, who as a habit of life, as a lifestyle, rest and live in light of the sovereignty of God or the providence of God. A big theme that's repeated several times expressly throughout this narrative, Genesis 37 through 50, is the idea the Lord was with Joseph continually. We don't have a lot of big open the Red Sea kind of miracles here, but we got big P. You know, in, in physics, big G, 9.8 meters per second is the big constant, you know. And physics kind of revolves around that in many ways. Uh, in the same way, God makes sure gravity works at 9.8 meters per second all day long, every day, all over the universe. God is providentially at work in every one of our lives. And the question is, are we going to trust it? Are we going to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when we have no earthly reason to do that? Because we got heavenly reasons. Now, when we say the Lord was continually with Joseph, why is that all caps? L-O-R-D, because that's the the Hebrew Old Testament word for the covenant God, for the personal salvation God who promised through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to send Jesus, right? So that's the, that's the word that only believers uh, can really use uh, legitimately. The Lord is my shepherd, the God of my salvation, who's going to send the Savior. Uh, he's going to take care of my needs. He's going to define my needs. He's going to take care of my needs. Joseph actually believed that, and he lives his life uh, whether it's in, uh, 
adversity or prosperity in a very stable fashion. And that's not my tendency, but uh, God has uh, over the years taught me to kind of, i never going to have enough information to legitimately second guess him. Put it in context, back in chapter 37, the beginning of the story, Joseph starts his favorite son with this multicolored letter jacket, ends up a foreign slave in Egypt, but rather than working in a salt mine and killing himself, working himself to death, he ends up with a pretty cushy position working for a high government official, inside work, no heavy lifting, and in fact, he becomes the, the leader, the supervisor of Potiphar's house. Chapter 38 is a bracket, a parenthetical uh, passage that talks about Judah, Joseph's brother, who's very sinful and very unfaithful to God, and that contrasts with all we see about Joseph. But in 39, we go from slave to supervisor over Potiphar's house, but then... What does Potiphar's wife do? Tries to seduce him, and when she can't get what she wants, she accuses him of attempted sexual assault, and he ends up in the jailhouse. So he goes from being supervisor of Potiphar's house to being in the jailhouse, but they make him a supervisor there after a little while because he's such a faithful guy. Last week in chapter 40, we saw him moving from fellow inmate with two members of the Pharaoh's cabinet who had gotten on his bad side and been thrown in the prison and Joseph interprets their dreams, and he tells the one guy, the butler, who's going to be uh, returned to his position in good graces with the Pharaoh in three days after the dream. He says, hey, remember now, when you go back to the Pharaoh, put in a good word for me, because I'm not, I'm totally innocent of this thing, and I, you know, help me out. Was Joseph not trusting in the Lord at that point when he asked for human help? We trust the Lord and do what we can do, what, what make, what's wise and prudent for us to do. You pray for your kids, you know, to grow up and love the Lord, and then you do stuff like pray with them and explain Scripture to them and actually apply your faith at home and not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, right? And now today in chapter 41, so he becomes a forgotten memory, I was going to say. So the the uh, the butler goes back to his position, but he immediately forgets about Joseph and never mentions him to the Pharaoh until two years later. We're going to see that today in chapter 41. Because uh, Carson, guess what? He's going to go from prisoner to prime minister. Now, you know, uh, I'm not real superstitious. I'm just a little bit stitious. But I'm not really a betting man except once a year I go to the Colts R Us meeting in Reno, Nevada. And no, I'm kidding. That's a bad thing. But um, if you're asking for odds in Chapter 37, this 17-year-old kid has been sold to slave marketeers to take him to Egypt, that about uh, 13 years later... He would be appointed to the position of prime minister over Egypt, probably the most powerful nation in the world at that time. You say there's no chance. That'd be like, uh, who's the worst team in the NFL right now? The, the Bills? Okay. Uh, we used to say Cleveland until he got a quarterback, right? But yeah, it'd be like, it'd be multiply this by a million. It'd be like saying the Bills are going to win the Super Bowl this year, which I don't think will happen, right? So we're going to look at chapter 41. We're going to see prisoner becomes prime minister, and it breaks down like this. First, we'll see the Pharaoh has dreams. The Pharaoh has dreams which demanded interpretation. The royal butler suddenly remembers Joseph as a guy he met in prison who can interpret dreams. And so he ends up, Joseph ends up standing before the Pharaoh. Be like being summoned to go see Donald Trump, you know, and just get on an airplane and shave and put on a suit. You're going to be talking to the president, you know, in, a, in an hour. Uh, and then finally, the prisoner is made prime minister by the proclamation of Pharaoh, but really, ultimately, by the providence of God. And I think I got my little squiggly thing wrong there on the uh, the handout, but that the big side of that squiggly thing should be facing the providence of God, right? So let me emphasize, this is real places, real people, real events. There's that section of the ancient Near East, and the land tract that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been promised was there. And we start the story in Dothan when Joseph goes, checks on his brothers, and they sell him into slavery to a group of people that are going to Egypt. And he ends up here. Eventually, when the family moves, they're going to live in Goshen. But right now, the capital city is Memphis. That's where Joseph is. Although his father-in-law-to-be lives in the in Sun City. That's the translation for that. Because his uh, wife he ends up with was the daughter of the priest of the God of the Sun, as it turns out. But let's look at Verses 1 through 8, Pharaoh's dreams need interpretation. Verse 1, now it happened at the end of two full years 
that Pharaoh had a dream. Okay, what does that mean? Well, let's stop there. Um, think about it. At the end of chapter 40, Joseph interprets the butler's dream. Right? And rather than the baker, who's going to be executed in three days, the butler's going to go back into good graces and work for the king again, right? And Joseph says, hey, that's what's going to happen. God showed you that through the dream. And when you get back into the good graces of the Pharaoh, put in a good word for me. But guess what? Nothing happens. And, you know, he's not getting a text. Joseph's getting no text from the butler. He's just assuming he just had, had had a good chance to tell him yet. And he waits for a couple of days, works for a couple of weeks, waits for a couple of months. And he's got to assume he's probably forgot about me or he just lied to me about trying to help me. So Joseph's been in a holding pattern for two years. Now, that's a long time, right? If you want to do the will of God consistently as a Christian, you're going to have to buy into the concept that the will of God is not just a, a what and a how, but it's also a when. And you're going to do a certain amount of waiting from your perspective. Now, why would God build wait? I don't know anybody who likes to wait. Nobody. Uh, that's part of our bro- broken nature. We don't like to wait. We want instant gratification. And we've got a culture that's addicted to instant gratification in part because you can get all the information you need about anything, including a lot of stuff you don't need to know about on this, right? Nobody likes to wait. But God has built waiting into the Christian, the spiritual life. Why would he do that? Because he wants to develop patience. Now, the problem with patience is we want it right now, <laughs> right? Uh, but patience is really a function of the love of God. God is patient. He's long-suffering. That means patient. And that is something in my old age. I'm actually, in some areas, I'm less patient than I was when I was dumb and stupid. And now I'm so much brighter, I actually get frustrated by stuff that probably shouldn't do that to me. But it happened in the two full years. It doesn't look like God's doing anything, but I like what Swindoll says about this two-year holding pattern. For me, dental school, I got halfway through dental school, so my wife did marry half a dentist. I actually did some uh, fillings on a lady who ended up in Africa as a missionary. I pulled teeth. I did all kinds of stuff I shouldn't have done without any good vision. But the Lord protected me from killing patients there for a while. Uh, I mean, really, you look back and say, how did I even do that? But that was my two years in Egypt, you know, so you'll know when you see the movie. But I like what I like what Swindoll says about this. Uh, for the most part, up to this point, Joseph's experiences have been somber have been definitely adversity kind of tests. Uh, he may have been born a favored son. That's kind of where he started. But his life was filled with disappointments, mistreatment, and rejection, with fear and false accusations, with slavery and now abandonment. His best buddy in prison's forgotten about him. Uh, at the end of chapter 40, we left Joseph alone in prison as he ended the previous chapter. Now, after a gap of two full years, we pick up the story again. Remember at the end of chapter 40, he told the butler two years before this, uh, now that I've told you the meaning of the dream, don't forget me. Keep me in mind when things go well, when you get promoted, please do me the kindness of mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this place. But the butler failed to remember or mention Joseph. Only three days after Joseph said this, the man was released restored to his former position as a cabinet member of the Pharaoh, but he promptly forgot about his days in the dungeon and promptly forgot about Joseph. Next page, page two. Those two full years for Joseph were neither exciting nor eventful. Nothing changed. Nothing seems to be happening. They represented a long, dull, monotonous, unspectacular, slow-moving grind, month after month of nothing, seemingly. Not even the Genesis account attempts to make those years seem meaningful. They just mention two full years. But on the other hand, it only seems like nothing's happening. The providence of God is always at work. He says, God was working to prepare Joseph for greatness. He's going to be prime minister in two years. Uh, when we in, when we find ourselves in those situations, God is trying to refine and strengthen us. After these two full years, Joseph experienced a turning point in his life. You think? It goes from being a prisoner to prime minister. That's pretty good. On a day that began seemingly like any other day in this two-year period. The morning dawned like every other morning the previous two years, just like the morning that dawned uh, the day before. Only one little thing was going on that Joseph didn't know about. That night, Pharaoh had a bad dream. Look at verse 2. 
Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, the Nile, the main river there in Egypt, of course, and from the Nile there came up seven cows, healthy and fat. Now, you may not think you, being fat is a good thing for you, but being fat is a very good thing for a cow. And it's very enjoyable to get fat. The problem is you've got to go burn it off, you know, if you're a human being. And they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, after the healthy, fat cows. Now see, you can go to your doctor and say, according to the Bible, being, being fat is healthy. So quit telling me to lose weight. You can use that verse, you know, Exodus 41. Uh, these two ugly, or these seven ugly cows come out, ugly and gaunt. And they sit by the other cows, the healthy ones, on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the healthy and fat cows. The Pharaoh awoke. That's his dream. And they, because it kind of was traumatic to him. And then he fell back asleep and dreamed a second dream. It has the same meaning, but different content. Behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears thin and scorched by the east wind, the desert wind sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke and behold, it was a dream, a nightmare. Now in the morning, his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all his wise men. And they, they had a theology of dream interpretations in that culture. And the Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. So we got a problem. This is a revelatory dream. This is the third set of two dreams we've seen in the story. What happened in chapter 37? Joseph has how many dreams? And he tells them to the brothers, and the brothers were so happy to hear they're all going to bow down to him one day, weren't they? So that's how the story got started. Then last week in chapter 40, the butler and the baker have dreams, and Joseph interprets those, and now the Pharaoh has dreams. So we've got uh, Pharaoh who believes, he's not an atheist, he believes in lots of gods, lowercase g, Andrew. And by the way, many years ago I was teaching Bible as literature at Cameron University, and I had a student before class announce to his classmates, well, the Old Testament says there's lots of different gods. It just says that the God of the Jews is the best one. And I said, hold on, let's, let's look at some of this Old Testament. Let's look at Psalm 96. Some of you have seen me do this, but I love this. Psalm 96, uh, verse 4 and 5 says, Great is the Lord, all caps, the God of our salvation, the Messiah through Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah. Great is the Lord, greatly be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Oh my goodness. Maybe that student was right. There must be a lot of gods. I mean, isn't that, isn't it saying God's just, you know, the Lord Yahweh is just better than the other gods. What I always like to say, most of your Bible problems are answered where? Next verse. Keep reading. Great is the Lord. Great is Yahweh, the creator, the sovereign God. Greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all the gods the Egyptians believe in or the Canaanites believe in because for there means because all the gods, lowercase g, of the peoples are just idols. They're not real. But the Lord is real. He made the heavens, right? So keep reading. Look at verse, uh, in fact, just for emphasis there, let's spin that one, okay? Look at verses 9 through 36. The royal butler, the cupbearer, suddenly remembers Joseph, and the prisoner finds himself standing before the Pharaoh. Very intimidating. Then the chief butler said to Pharaoh, I would make mention today of my own offenses. I want to remind you about a bad part in our relationships. You know, two years ago, uh, Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. That's the same prison that Joseph was already in. Uh, we had a dream on the same night, he and I, and each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. We had different dreams with different interpretations. Now, a Hebrew youth, okay, he was 28 years old at the time, but... Uh, there was a time I looked very young for my age. It was a long time ago. And I can remember, I, we got married when we were 20. And as, almost as late as 30, uh, I'd interact with people um, who didn't really know me, you know, maybe buying something at a store or something. And they'd call me Sonny or Kid and stuff like that. And I looked at Debbie walking, I remember distinctly, I was like 30 years old. And I said, I'd be glad when I look so old, people stop call calling me Sonny or Kid. And now, really, I wish they would call me son or kid, but it, does, it doesn't happen anymore. So all these little problems eventually take care of themselves, you know. But um, there was a Hebrew youth, you know, he's a 28-year-old kid. 
when you get as old as I am, you seem like a kid. But I'm not, you're not a kid. You're a young man. Uh, Dustin will be my personal bodyguard in Israel. I have no fears. The Lord will take care of me, and uh, he's going to use Dustin uh, in many ways. Yeah, so we'll have no problems. I can see that. Now, a Hebrew youth, a young man, 28-year-old kid, was with us, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard. He was the head trustee over the prison now. And we, relate, we related the dreams to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He interpreted both the dreams, and they both were fulfilled according to what he said. And he restored me in my office. That is the, you know, the Pharaoh. He's using a third person like Bob Dole did there. Uh, but he hanged the other guy. Now watch this. We stressed this last week. God can't and won't forget about you, but people will. It happens all the time. So don't be surprised when it happens. But if they ever really need us, they'll find us. You know, that's one of the problems. You know, you're a pastor for 31 years in a city like this. And without meaning to, you kind of uh, uh, generate a certain mass of people who don't like you very much for various reasons because you didn't show up for something or didn't do something the way they wanted to. But uh, they can act like they don't know you at Walmart. But if something really bad happens and I need some spiritual advice, they find me and they're very friendly when they need me to do something for them. So this happens, you know, uh, and these aren't necessarily PTB efforts, but other people. Uh, without meaning to, uh, I've become the chaplain at CU Duncan. And so I'll have students just, uh, I remember I was actually in Oklahoma City one Saturday for some reason by myself. I'm not sure, I'm sure it was for legal reasons, but I had this girl who had had a horrible attitude a few semesters before that. And she she calls me and says, do you remember me? And I said, yeah, I remember you. And she had a, a serious legal problem and needed a clergyman to kind of go down there and talk to somebody. Uh, and it was really complicated. And I thought, you know, I do these things, but, you know, if the shoe's on the other foot, there's no way she didn't remember who I was. But people will do that. God won't forget you, but people will. Uh, but it's funny, when they really need something from us, they suddenly remember us. So anyway, that happens, so... Just uh, put on a reality check and don't let it be a surprise for you anyway. Then you decide on a case-by-case basis what you should do. I always try to err on the side of being too nice, but that's just me. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and he's been in prison for two years. Now, he looks fairly good for a prisoner, but he's grown a beard for sure, which is kind of the way the Hebrews have always done. But the Egyptians hated facial hair. So, Dustin, you know, if, if in that culture they wanted you to go see the Pharaoh, you'd have to, get, you'd have to shave, right? Uh, now, uh Where's, where's Daryl? Seen here? You know, when Daryl first came back from Mississippi, he had this crazy looking beard. And then, uh, and you know, it, it was so funny because that first Friday we came back, um, Blanche and Zane and Debbie and I were at the Roman Catholic fish fry during Lent. We're the only Protestants that observed Lent around here. We go to the Catholic fish fry in Marlowe. This is the Friday after he came back. And Dustin's sitting there, and, he, and then uh, the Birches, who would sometimes come, they show up a little bit late. You remember what Michael did? <laughs> Daryl had this hat on and his beard, and Michael plops down, and he gets up and goes around the table and says, Hi, I'm, my name is Michael Birch. I, I, he didn't even recognize him. And Daryl kind of takes his hat off and says, Hey. And he goes, Oh, I'm sorry, Daryl, I didn't recognize you. <laughs> and then... Uh, a couple of weeks later, on a Wednesday night, Daryl comes in. He's shaved. And I'm not saying you need to shave. In fact, you're going to look good in Israel. I'll think you're an Israeli. A, a really, you know, powerful Israeli, which is good. They may draft you in the Israeli Defense Forces, okay, just so you'll know. You keep your passport on you so we can prove you're an American. But, yeah, Wednesday night, a few weeks later on Wednesday night, Daryl shaved his, his beard. And um, several people were commenting on it. And then somebody else plopped down and looked at Daryl and kind of took a double take, and Zane says, Daryl finally found his razor. <laughs> so I, rem- I remember everything, folks, just so you'll know. So watch this. So they pulled Joseph out of prison. Now go, you got to go right now. This is, this is the way it works. There's a lot of waiting in the plan of God, but once certain things happen, you got to move. It's like the army, hurry up and wait. It's like going to Israel. You know, we got, we're going to leave at 6.05 in the morning. we got to be in the airport at 4.05 a.m., Okay, and what's going to happen? Uh, because I think we've nailed down all the details to the nth degree, it'll take about 
five minutes probably for us all to go through there. And then we're going to sit and wait for two hours. And then they'll say the flight's delayed for 30 minutes. We'll wait for two and a half hours. And then we're going to fly to Toronto and wait for six hours. There's a lot of waiting, right, in life. But once they call the plane, you better get on because it's going to leave with you or without you. So Joseph's been waiting for two years. Suddenly that happens. And they say, hey, Pharaoh wants to talk to you. So they brought him out of dungeon. They shaved him because you didn't go see the Pharaoh unless you were dressed up nicely. And they did not, they didn't like body, facial hair, I should say, in that culture. So they shaved, he shaved himself, changed his clothes, came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but nobody can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. So Natalie emphasized you. And Joseph hears that. And what does he say? He says, it's not in me, God. This is like the God, the transcendent, the only God. All the other gods you believe in aren't really real. Um, as he said back in chapter four, 40, verse 8 to the butler and the baker, uh, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer, an accurate interpretation. He'll help me to do it. But he's just giving credit where credit is due. Uh, one thing I really liked about Callie's testimony when she was up here um, a couple weeks ago, uh, the Fergusons, you know, who's uh, Callie Yeager Ferguson, where she was talking about just day-to-day interactions with people and how you can actually, you know, kind of inject it with some grace and some specific references to God when it makes sense. So uh, jo- Joseph doesn't miss an opportunity there. He doesn't want Pharaoh to think this is some kind of special insight that is detached from his faith and his connection with God. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, verse 17, Let me tell you what I dreamed. Tell me what it means, please. In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. Behold, seven cows, healthy and sleek, came out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly. It's one thing to be ugly, but very ugly. Somebody said, beauty is skin deep, but ugly goes all the way to the bone. Mama Joe used to say that. Um, I I don't know how I remember that. Um, so they're very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the days of Egypt. So he's pretty proud of the cows of Egypt, right? And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven healthy cows. Yet, when they devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. You know, you can eat, they could eat all they want and not gain any weight, okay? Don't, don't envy the cows there, okay? Then I awoke. I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, ears of corn, uh, full and good, came up on a single stalk, and behold, seven ears withered, thin and scorched by the east desert wind sprouted up after them, and the thin ears sh- swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to my magicians, the guys that are supposed to interpret dreams for me, or at least crank plausible interpretations out, whether they're right or not, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Magicians in that culture were wrong a lot of the time, but we put up with it, kind of like weathermen today. You know, they were wrong a lot of times, but we put up with it, right? Verse 25, now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. There's just one meaning here, okay? How two dreams, but one meaning, and twice to make sure it's certain. Now he's underlining it. He's putting it in bold print so you won't miss it. They're one and the same thing. God has told Pharaoh what he's about to do. These are revelatory dreams to Pharaoh that uh, his, his man Joseph's going to interpret. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same in their meaning. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after the good cows, the healthy cows, are seven years, and the seven thin ears that ate up the, the good ears scorched by the east wind. These are seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. This is all about the sovereign providence of God from beginning to end. And that's what your life's about too. You just got to believe it and, and trust it. But um, he's, you know, he's not compromising anything here. This isn't for me. This is from God. God, the real God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the real God. He's in charge of everything. We're going to have seven years of bumper crops and then seven years of nothing. Just so you'll know. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come. And all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. Famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of the subsequent famine. It will be very severe, right? Look at verse 32. 
Now, as to the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined. It's certain. It's going to happen. This is God telling you what's going to happen. There's nothing you can do to change it. And God will bring it, uh, quickly bring it to pass. It's going to start like right now. Let the clock start. Now, let Pharaoh look for a man. So he's interpreting the dream. Now he's going to apply the dream. My theory of preaching is, Let's study the text so you know what it means. So Savannah can walk out of here and know what Genesis 41 means in her Bible. What's that worth to you? It's a lot. What's the meaning in context? But that's not enough. What are some of the implications, applications, uh, practical uh, consequences of this meaning? Interpretation is what the meaning of the text is in context. Application is what does his meaning mean to me? What does it mean to Amber in her life or uh, Sydney in her life kind of thing? So he's, he's doing both those things for, for Pharaoh, and Pharaoh didn't ask for application. He asked for interpretation. But this guy has testified to his faith. He's giving him a lesson on the providence of God, and now he's going to tell him what he needs to know about application. I don't think he's applying for the job. I don't think Joseph is thinking they're going to pick him. He's just a Hebrew prisoner. Whoa, what does that mean? Okay. Uh, he's just telling what he, what he thinks he needs to know. Now watch this. So this is going to happen. It's going to happen like immediately. Now let Pharaoh look for a man who's discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt to deal with all the details of seven good years. We're going to have to save a lot of it so we can distribute it fairly for the seven years of famine. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers under that one person in charge of the land and let him exact one-fifth, 20% of the produce every year during the seven good years are going to be saved. Uh, in seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store it up or stop the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Verse 36, let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which are coming in all the land of Egypt so the land will not perish during the famine. So he tells them what it means. We're going to have seven good years, then seven bad years, and here's what you need to do like right now, Okay. Now, we only have 12 more years to live on planet Earth, so look busy, okay, please. Uh, this is almost as bad as there was a thing called the Jupiter effect about every 150 years from our vantage point on Earth. And, you know, we're going around the sun, realize that? Uh, and so are the other planets. Every 150 years, from our perspective, if you look out, uh, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and I think Neptune kind of line up, okay? And, and this happened about 20 years ago now. And there were all these warnings. The Jupiter effect's going to happen. It's got to be the second coming of Christ. It's going to be the end of the world. And the holiday, this happens every 150 years. What happened 150 years ago? I mean, and it's just so dumb to say stuff like that. Uh, what does Jesus say about the when of his return? Nobody knows. Not even Chuck Missler. Not even Chuck Swindoll. Okay? Not even little Chucky who lives down the street from me. He doesn't know either. Nobody knows. Okay? But it's going to be right on time. Now, the prisoners made prime minister. You couldn't make this up. We're going to go from extreme adversity test to big time prosperity test. Verse 37. Now, the proposal, not just the interpretation, but the proposal. Let's get one person and let's build a system where we can save 20% of the grain so we can survive the seven years that's coming, or seven bad years that's going to come after the seven good years. Now, the proposal seemed good to the Pharaoh. So he's being, you know, he's all ears, right? That's what Ross Perot used to say when he ran for president. I'm all ears. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this guy? This guy, this this is our guy. He's going to be, you know, when John Marshall, who became the probably most famous uh, Supreme Court justice, uh, uh, became chief justice, he wasn't looking for the job. President John Adams, who was a friend of John Marshall's, and John Marshall fought in the Revolution, was a good friend of George Washington, too. But when the uh, the previous chief justice stepped down, President John Adams asked his friend John Marshall to come to the White House. John Adams was the first president to live in the White House. And he said, I'm going to have to appoint a, another, a new chief justice to the Supreme Court uh, help me to formulate kind of a job description and some characteristics we're going to need in this person. And John Marshall wasn't looking for the job, didn't want the job, but the president knew him and trusted him. And so they kind of hammered out this job description, and Marshall leaves, and John Adams looks at it and says, that's John Marshall. <laughs> i got to have John Marshall. 
You know, so it's kind of like that. Joseph, I don't think, is looking for the job, would not think in a million years they'd offer a guy who's been in prison for an attempted sexual assault the, the position. He's just telling what, you know, he, he uh, thinks the Pharaoh needs to hear. And it is kind of as he is, he kind of leaves the room, as it were. And we have a cabinet meeting and Pharaoh says, are we going to find anybody better than this guy to do this? Uh, because in him is a divine spirit. So clearly, Pharaoh was a Trinitarian uh, evangelical Christian, right? No. He believes in lots of gods. He's happy to believe that the Hebrews, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Canaan, have a god too. And he's just saying he's got some kind of supernatural enablement. Now his god's helping him, you know, his truth. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God, your God, has informed you of all this, there's no one so discerning and wise as you are in implementing the strategy you propose to us. You shall be over my house. And not just my house. He started over Potiphar's house, remember? And according to my command, all my people, the entire Egyptian kingdom, shall do homage to you. Only in the throne I'll be greater than you. You're going to be the highest person in the government of Egypt except for me um, and everybody else will be saluting you and asking you how high when you say to jump. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. This is his proclamation, but it's the providence of God that's really making this happen. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring, his power of authority, power of attorney, direct representation. You seal anything with that ring and it happens in Egypt. No questions asked. Here's my signet ring. Put it on. Clothe him in garments of fine linen. Uh, look the part. Put the gold necklace around his neck. So, hey, some bling here, okay? Must be good. This is Egyptian culture being described, not necessarily prescribed. Uh, you know, in high school, I had all the bling and stuff. I had all the rings. They called me Ringo. I was the original Ringo. Ringo got the nickname from me, actually. Um, I don't really like jewelry. You know, I wear my wedding ring proudly, but that's really the only jewelry. But I've been wearing glasses since I was two years old, so that was kind of jewelry I didn't need. But uh, anyway, puts the gold necklace around his neck. Uh, and had him ride in Air Force Two. What's Air Force One? Who rides Air Force One? Who rides in Air Force Two? The second chariot would be like Air Force Two. And they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. And he, Pharaoh, set him, Joseph, over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Slight hyperbole there, but he's saying absolute authority. Now, somebody once said, authority corrupts, absolute authority corrupts absolutely. Doesn't happen with him. Let me suggest that Joseph, successfully dealing with all these adversity tests for 13 years, has made him strong enough to deal with what would have been a more difficult test for most people. Puff up and drift away? He's not going to do that. He's going to stay right in the center of the will of God. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaph-Enath, Panea, uh, and we don't know what that means. Now, a lot of commentaries say, well, that's the Egyptian word that means God speaks or, or someone listens to God. But if you actually go to primary sources, nobody knows exactly what that Egyptian name means. But he's giving him an Egyptian name, an Egyptian looks, because he's legally going to have all of the uh, privileges of an Egyptian citizen who just happens to outrank everybody but Pharaoh. Okay, So he's kind of becoming a naturalized Egyptian citizen. He also gave him a proper wife in the proper social setting. Now, you might say, well, that's not the way we do it. We kind of fall in love and get married. In some cultures, in arranged marriage context, people get married and then try to fall in love, and they tend to have lower divorce rates than we've got. Now, there are other reasons for that. Um, well, why in the world would God let uh, Joseph marry a pagan? Well, under the circumstances, so she could hear about the real God and become a believer. I think you're going to find... Asenath in heaven. Uh, could be wrong, but we'll find out. So I gave him a proper wife, put him in the right social circles. He's got the name. He's got the look. He's got the signet ring. He's got the uniform. It's all good. And she just happens to be the daughter of Potiphera, a priest of On, who's the sun god. And Hierapolis here, uh, we're doing all this in Memphis, which is now Cairo. That's the capital. But that's where... Uh, the sun god was worshipped, a massive temple. They've dug it all up. So this, this is real real people, real places, real events. And uh, Joseph went forth and kind of went all over the nation to kind of get a feel for the big picture here. Important to do that, big 
top of the jigsaw puzzle box. Now look at this, verse 46. Joseph was how old? 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out and just kind of surveyed the whole thing. We're just at the very beginning of the seven years of plenty, right? So he wants to get a good feel with his own eyes of what's going on there. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly bumper crops. So he gathered all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities, these storehouse cities, and placed in every city the food which was from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it because it was beyond measure based on the instruments of the time. Now, this is more than you want to know about the chronology, but if my guy for New Testament chronology is Dr. Harold Honer. This is Dr. Paul Tanner, who was formerly the academic dean at Jets, Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary in Amman, Jordan, the only Christian theological seminary in the Arab world. And this is his breakdown historically of the life of Joseph. I noticed the, uh, uh, some of the study Bibles have a different year here. I think some of them have 1884. But when we're saying 1886, we're not talking a couple of decades before the Wright brothers. We're talking about 1886 B.C., okay? But according to Dr. Tanner, and I think his expertise is such, I'm going to trust him for it. He's also a very nice guy. Uh, we know the text says later that Joseph lives to be 110. We know he's 30 years old when... Uh, he was 17 to start. 13 years later, he's 30. So this is happening according to Dr. Tanner. There's going to be a test later. No, you don't have to know these numbers. But he's 30 years old. Now watch this. This is interesting. Uh, seven years of good, a couple of years of bad before the brothers, the family, end up in Egypt. And, uh, you know, from uh, his entrance to Egypt as a slave until his dad dies is a total of 40 years. And that tells us that good old dad lived uh, 16, 17, 18 years in Egypt. So they had a nice long reunion. It was longer. I hadn't thought about that. You know, if Joseph is sold by his brothers when he's 17, he gets probably more than 17, a little bit more than 17 with his dad in Egypt. And that a, a nice way God made that work out. Uh, and then it's interesting that Joseph spends 93 years in Egypt. He lives at age 17. This would be 110. But anyway, I just thought that was interesting. I like maps and graphs and charts and stuff like that. No extra charge for that. But uh, there will be a tip jar in the back. So if you want to do that, feel free. Not really. Um, yeah. Now watch this. Joseph is embracing his position, but he gives his sons not Egyptian names. He gives them Hebrew names. Because this guy understands Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's one of the sons of Jacob. There's going to be the family through whom the Messiah is coming. He believes that. He's got that. Now, watch this. Now, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, which means forget, because God made him forget all the trouble, move me past all the trouble with my brothers and the slavery and all that. Verse 52, he named the second one Ephraim, uh, which means fruitful, because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Hebrew names, he's claiming his Hebrew status, ultimately, although he's got to be a naturalized citizen. He's a kind of a dual citizen, you might say. And it's so funny because J. Vernon McGee, anybody remember him? He was an old-time radio preacher. He looks at Manasseh and Ephraim here, forget and fruitful, and he says, just think of them as amnesia and ambrosia. I thought that was pretty good, right? I read all this McGee stuff, and like once every five years, I actually get to cite something he says. So thank you, Dr. McGee. Um, when the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, what's going to happen now? Seven years of bad. Uh, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. Then there was a famine in all the lands in the area, in the ancient areas, and it includes Canaan, which is one reason they're coming for food in a couple of years. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread because they're passing it out. They'd stored it up. So when all the land of Egypt was famished and people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, Pharaoh said, hey, here's, here's the direct line to Joseph. He can make it happen for you, right? Go to Joseph. Whatever he says, do it. When the famine was spread all over the face of the earth, that word ha'eretz, Sometimes refers just to Israel, sometimes to the ancient Near East, sometimes to the whole planet. We're not talking about China and the Native Americans getting in boats to get the, the food here. We're talking about the ancient Near East in the area, several hundred mile radius around Egypt, you'd say. 
Joseph opened up all the storehouses, sold to the Egyptians first, but the extra could be sold to foreigners. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt and the whole area. And the people of all the area, the Ha'eretz, the ancient Near East, right around Egypt, came to Egypt to buy grain for Joseph. Why is that good to know? Because his brothers are coming in the next chapter to buy food. Because the famine was severe throughout the whole uh, the landmass there. So seeing God's hand on Joseph, Pharaoh appoints him to be the prime minister over the nation. He becomes a member of the social elite. And yet Joseph doesn't let this prosperity test water down his walk with the Lord. When he has kids, he names them Hebrew names. He's totally a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No problem. Parallel passage you might not have known about. This is Psalm 105. It's so cool. Drop down a couple of verses. I guess verse 1 through 4. Talking about God has remembered his covenant, this agreement he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give him a nation, uh, to bless the whole world through the nation, and ultimately through the Messiah. Uh, God has remembered his covenant. He doesn't forget. People will forget. God won't forget. Which he made with Abraham. His oath to Isaac and Jacob. Those guys are all in line. The same promise applies, although it gets repeated. Saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. Jesus wasn't a Palestinian. He was Jewish, okay? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's nuts, man. Uh, and he, he gave that promise to them when they were just, nobody knew who they were. They were just little people. They, they weren't a nation yet, right? In fact, when Joseph's family immigrates, you only have 70 people total. But God said you're going to be a great nation. 400 years later, at the end of the slavery period in Egypt for the nation, you've got well over a million. They become a great nation. They go take their land. Uh, drop down to verse 8. Uh, and God called a famine upon the land. And again, Hyers means the ancient Near East here. And he sent a man before them, Joseph. This was God's providence getting Joseph into Egypt, right? Who was sold as a slave. He was put in irons until the time that his word came to pass. Uh, the king, Pharaoh, sent and released him, you know, 13 years after he'd been there. The ruler of all the peoples and set him free. And they made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions, over Pharaoh's house. Uh, so this Pharaoh's princes would learn from him. He'd be over everybody else in the government except for Pharaoh. Uh, and eventually, we're going to see this in a couple of chapters, Israel, that is Jacob, comes to Egypt because they run out of food in Canaan. And they end up reintroducing themselves to, J- to Joseph, as it were. Very interesting. And the sojourn in the land of Ham and the Lord... The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob caused his people to be very fruitful. They become from 70 to several million uh, and stronger than their adversaries, so they enslave them and that kind of thing. Now, what's this covenant we're reading about here? He remembered his covenant. We talk about this a lot. This is the whole macro uh, narrative of the Old Testament. God enters into this promise, unconditional, uh, it's called a covenant of grant, uh, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they're going to have this land tract, in the Mediterranean, uh, in the uh, Jordan Valley area, that he's going to have a seed, even though he's too old to have a kid, and his child is going to be part of the line, Isaac, that comes the Messiah, and that's going to bless the whole world. So that's all about how God is working in the Old Testament to get Jesus here. Now that promise continues to be fulfilled to this day, and it will throughout human history. However, when that people group that goes from 70 to at least a million and a half when they leave Egypt four years later, when they need to have a constitution and bylaws, they're given spirituality with training wheels. It's the old covenant. It's the Old Testament law, right? Partial, preliminary, and pointed to what? And to who? On this side of the coming of the Messiah, the greater son of David, the greater son of Abraham, we don't have the training wheels on it anymore. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10 says. So that covenant, that reference to the covenant in Psalm 105, we're just talking about the Joseph story, he's talking about that baseline promise. And this is why I think it's important to remember, most American Christians don't have a good synthetic grasp of the Bible, much less your unbelieving friends. But the idea is you've got two parts of the Bible. Old Testament's partial preliminary pointing to the coming of Jesus. It stresses that all human beings sin and die but God's going to send a Savior. We're living on the other side of that. The Old Testament promised that. The New Testament says Jesus Christ is the one that was promised, and he's coming back. But whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but has everlasting life. And as you know, lots of promises and prophecies being made. So Joseph and his family 
are one generation in this long time, thousand of year program to get Jesus here. God works slowly but surely. His providence never takes a vacation, right? And Isaiah 53, written in 700 BC, Chris, talks about what Jesus would do when he arrived exactly on schedule. He'd be pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. In 700 BC, crucifixion hadn't been invented yet. The Egyptians actually invented it. The Romans perfected it. But uh, it wasn't even invented yet. But in 700 BC, you got this prophecy. The Messiah is going to be pierced for our transgressions. He's going to die for our sins, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace upon, that brought us peace with God was, was brought upon him. By his wounds were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. All of sin comes from the glory of God. Wage of sin is death, but the free gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And the Lord, God the Father, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, in less, about 10 days, uh, 46 of us are going to be in the land of Israel. And we won't go this here the first day, but we will be on the Mount of Olives and very near the Garden of Gethsemane on Mount of Olives. There's this little church called the Church of the Teardrop, and it's got this wrought iron window in it. And uh, I'd seen this picture, a picture like it, before I went to Israel the first time. But I always wanted to see, is, that, is there really a church like that? Because it's so perfect. So you've got superimposed over the Dome of the Rock, which stands for what religion? You've got the cross, right? Uh, according to Muslim theology, Allah would never let an exalted prophet like Isa, Jesus, die on a cross like that. They think he's a Muslim prophet predicting Muhammad. So what happened was the dirty Jews condemned him to the Romans, and the Romans were happy to crucify him. But somewhere between where Pontius Pilate proclaimed Jesus guilty and Golgotha, somebody else was mistaken for Jesus and ended up being crucified. So rather than what we're believing, Christ took Carson's place and my place and Michelle's place. According to Muslim theology, Allah would never let a great prophet be crucified, and he caused somebody else, probably Judas, according to most Muslims, would be crucified in Jesus' place. So they got it exactly backward. But I always love that because you've got that, that wrought iron cross there uh, through which you can see and look at the old city and the new city of Jerusalem, uh, including the Dome of the Rock. And this is the bottom line. You know, God uh, has Joseph here describing him. He's an Old Testament believer. He's believing in the promises of the Messiah. We on this side, the New Testament side, we get to look back at the provided Messiah. But either way, because... God sent a Messiah to die for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins. But he ain't dead anymore, is he? And a dead Savior is not going to get you from Oklahoma to heaven. But the risen Savior is the only one who can. Bottom line, what does the Bible teach about prosperity? Now, if you ask Joe Olstein, what does the Bible teach about prosperity? It says, if you just have enough faith, you're not going to get sick. You're not going to have financial problems. If you get sick or have financial problems, it's your fault. You don't have enough faith, right? Faith is only as good as its object, okay? God uses both adversity and prosperity. Have you looked at your wedding vows recently? For richer only. For better only. If we get poorer or worser, I'm out of here. Does anybody say that at a wedding? Do they understand what they're saying to each other? You know, my premarital counseling is basically trying to talk them out of it. You don't want to say this to somebody with a sin nature, do you? I mean, how dare you, you know? Have you read the Bible? Um... Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be funny there, but, uh, you know, they're going to be in, in our, occasionally in our lives, we're going to get a pat on the back, or we're going to get, uh, some kind of accolade, or we're going to get a promotion we didn't expect, or we're going to have somebody do something really nice for us that we didn't earn, didn't deserve. And you can start kind of, kind of look at yourself in the mirror and say, hey, I must be pretty special. And I would say, and I would say this to Dustin, Dustin, you are special and you're important, but so is everybody else in the room, okay? Uh, so try to get over it, you know? Uh, believers who recognize their successes are ultimately just functions of the providence of God will be better able not to puff out and drift away from their old friends, from their allegiance to Jesus when you're now playing with the cool kids in this culture. And so you don't want to look like you're too serious about this stuff because you might turn them off. That's what we're talking about, this prosperity test. And so uh, remember, God's more interested in your character than your circumstances. But when things are going good, that may be more tempting to some believers to drift than when they're facing adversity, you know? Either one can trip you up. It's all about resting in and trusting in the Lord and understanding and believing the promise of God. 
can really keep you oriented when bad things or good things are happening all around you. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. You've spoken and haven't stuttered in your word. And as we look at these events in the life of Joseph, there's so many wonderful lessons we can glean. And, um, you know, we tend to think the tests are all just the adversity tests, but help us to realize that as good things happen to us, we get promoted, we get a bigger job, a better job title, more money, live in a bigger house. Uh, if we've earned those, you know, properly and legitimately, hey, you just providentially have blessed us, and that's great. But don't let it ever make us think we're more than we are. Forgive us for being arrogant or self-righteous or uh, condemning people who don't have some of the physical comforts we have. Help us never to get in that position. And I thank you that we've got a great example in Joseph, but a much greater example in our Lord Jesus Christ, who did not believe that the expression of his deity was something that he had to hold on to. He was willing to give that up, take on the form of a bondservant, and ultimately die on a cross. So humble us by the cross and motivate us to be faithful when things are going bad and also when things are going good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.